Good morning, my name is Wes McCain. I'm one of the elders here and the senior pastor here at Crosspoint. I just want to extend my welcome to you this morning. Uh, just uh, before we begin, you might, uh, you might see me over here um, moving my hands a lot, and you might think I'm doing like spazzing out and stuff like that. It lo- kind of looks like that, um, and, and trying my hand at sign language. I'll just say this. There is some beautiful hand motions to words in sign language. If I can just show you two, is that the word, and this will pertain to our sermon this morning, the word for holy, you take two fingers, if you do this with me, it's just pulling it down your palm like this, holy. And what we're going to hear is that God is a holy God, perfect and flawless. He has no flaws. And every person who stands before God, this is the word for stand, if you'll do that with me, stand before God. Every person who stands before God will ultimately have to kneel before God because He is such a holy God. Isn't there such beautiful language in sign language that goes with words that I just think sometimes we don't really, we don't get the gravity of it just by saying it, that God is holy and that anybody who thinks that they can stand before a holy God will find out that they will fall to their knees in worship of a holy God. And so, If you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25. We'll be looking at Exodus 25, 10 through 40, uh, doing a little bit of comparison with Exodus 37, 1 through 24. We won't look much over there in Exodus 37, because it's basically the same features, other than you find out that Bezalel is the one who's doing the constructing of these instruments. So we'll really focus our time here on Exodus 25, 10 through 40. And once you've found your place there, If you would, stand for the reading of God's Word. It says this, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them. On the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces to one another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat. And from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around around it a handbreadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at the four legs. 
Close to the frame rings shall line, as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls which to pour the drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of presence on the table before me regularly. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall meet, be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each piece of the six branches, going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a town of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown to you on the mountain. Let's pray. God, as we do every week, we need your help. We need your help in understanding and believing your word, O oh God. So I pray by your spirit at work in us that we would see that you are a holy God and the only right response as we approach you is worship and bowing down on our faces and knees, oh God. And Lord, I thank you for the word that we have just read from Exodus 25, 10 through 40. Let us all always be reminded that every single word in 10 through 40 of chapter 25 is breathed out by you and is profitable for reproof, for teaching, for the training in righteousness, oh God. Every word. Every part is your counsel, O oh God, and we need this so. Be with us now. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Do you remember your first house or your first apartment? You remember how you furnished it? Remember how the pieces of furniture that you got and put in maybe your new house and your new apartment? Well, if you, um, if you had come to our first apartment... You would see that all of our stuff was hand-me-downs. Anybody else had hand-me-down stuff? Our couch was from our sister. Our chair was from my mom. Our table was from a family friend. All of the, we, we did not own really anything. All of it was bought or given by other people. And so all of this was just hand-me-downs from other people. This was all of our furniture. Now, I, I think you would expect that probably, this is probably different than how the royal family grew up, Right? Uh, they probably didn't have hand-me-downs, or hand, maybe hand-me-down castles, I guess. Other people used them. But uh, they're, all their furniture is probably built by other people, built specifically for them and things like that, because they're the royal family, right? That's the kind of items and furniture that they need for their position. Well, we'll see this today in Exodus 25, 10 through 40, is that the people are instructed by God to furnish the tabernacle with furniture, to construct these pieces. And each item, as we will see, has significance in God's tabernacle, in God's place that He is choosing to dwell with His people. And the furniture symbolizes, it, it is associated with the person who dwells in the tabernacle. That he who dwells in there is worthy of all these things and the significance of all these things. So here's what we're going to see today and just looking at all these different pieces from the ark, from the table to the mercy seat to all these pieces. 
is that we're going to see this. The tabernacle furniture signals the holiness, the atonement, the fellowship, the life, and the future heavenly realities that come from dwelling, from God dwelling among His people. That's what we're going to see. That's a lot to see in some pieces of furniture, but it's there because God has given it to us. And so the first piece of furniture that we're going to see today, in starting in verse 10, is this. The ark. The ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant. And this ark of the covenant, this box, is associated with God's holy presence. That's what it's associated with. I don't know like you if maybe your spouse or somebody, a friend, is really good with uh, feng shui or, you know, how to place furniture in a house, where to put it and stuff like that. So let's say you buy a new house and, you know, what if the first thing that you placed in it was kind of the centerpiece? And maybe you do it like that. Does anybody do it like that? You want to put something in the living room or wherever, and then you kind of build around that all the other pieces, right, to see how it looks, right? Or maybe you want to put the TV up and see where you're going to put all the couches and stuff like that. But there's one thing that becomes a centerpiece, and everything else is arranged around that. That's how some people design their houses, right? And this is how God's house is kind of designed. Is that the centerpiece of this is the Ark of the Covenant that is placed into the Holy of Holies. It's the centerpiece of God's tabernacle. It goes into the Holy of Holies. And this is the centerpiece because what verse 22 says is this is the place where God will meet with them and speak to them at the Ark of the Covenant. So that's why it's the centerpiece of the tabernacle. And God goes on to give certain features of what this tabernacle should, or what this Ark of the Covenant should have on it. Well, the first is this, that you're to construct this Ark of the Covenant made of these particular things. It's supposed to be a, a beautiful box overlaid with gold. But God also gives instructions about how this thing is to be transported. Did anybody hear how it was supposed to be transported by what? By poles, right? By poles. God is giving scrupulous details, even not just about how the ark was to look, but how the ark was to be moved and transported, right? The ark is associated with God's presence, therefore it must be treated like any other, not just like any other object. Right? You think about ancient kings. How were they transported, right? You got servants to raise them up on a litter transport or in a, in a carriage of some form, right? I asked the deacons to do that for me a while back, and uh, it was declined. I don't know why, but um, I think because they were just wasn't strong enough to hold me up, something like that, right? But usually significant people are held up high, right? That's what kings in the past were done to. And here you're getting a similar thing. Is that the Ark of the Covenant is so significant, it can't be transported like any other thing. It's got to be transported with poles. And that it's got to be transported with poles because no one can put their hand to this thing. No one can touch it. Because it's associated with God's holy presence, right? It must be carried by poles, and the poles are to remain in it, what verse 15 says. And that actually, this actually may have caused Uzzah his life. If anybody remembers the sad story of Uzzah, I don't know if that's your favorite character in the Bible, but in 2 Samuel 6, if you remember, they were transporting the Ark of the Covenant. And you know what they were transporting it on? A cart. Now, why is that a problem? How were they supposed to transport it by? You already gave me the answer. 
by poles. So you already know something's gone wrong. They're putting it on a cart, meaning they were never, what it says here, to take the poles out. It was always supposed to remain in there. And then the ox stumbles, the cart wiggles, and the Ark of the Covenant falls. And Uzzah, bad mistake. What does he do? Reaches out and touches it, thinking it's like any other object, right? But it's not. And what happens to Uzzah? Dies. He dies right there on the spot. Because one, they did not obey the instructions to carry it with the pole. And two, they treated it like any other random object. No, it wasn't. And let me just, let me just, a word of caution to all of us. I think there's a good story in the story of Uzzah. It's either full obedience or no obedience. God does not accept partial obedience. Well, we're, we're, we put the ark on the cart. It's okay that we didn't have the poles. What did God say? God didn't put these instructions in here just to say, oh, those are negotiable. You can, you can determine what you want, how you want to transport. No, God gave scrupulous details on how it was to be built and how it was to be transported. Christians, listen to this. God gives specific scrupulous instructions. You don't get to make the decisions on which one we keep and don't keep. That's not ours. And so what's important about this ark is not only how it's to be transported, not only what it represents, but even what they put inside of it. What do they put inside of it? The what? The testimony. Yeah, thank you, children. Yeah, they put in the commandments of God into the ark of the testimony because they are important. They are God's words, and they're supposed to be guarded and kept safe and treasured. What do, you, what do we put in a safe, children? What do we put in safes? Money. We put money in safes, right? Stuff that's valuable. Stuff that we want to keep safe. We don't want any, maybe our brothers and sisters to touch, right? You put it in a safe. Because we care a lot about the things that we put in safes. So what is this saying when they put the testimony of the Lord in the ark? It's saying, this is something that we treasure. This is something that we care for. This is something that's important to us. And this is where it's to go. And then, this Ark of the Covenant is surrounded by these weird supernatural figures called cherubim, right? Cherubim are everywhere, all over this Ark of the Covenant, right? They're everywhere. Why are they there? Well, just like you would expect, when you see the secret service, who do you expect to be close behind them? Who do you expect? The president. So when you see cherubim all over the place, you should expect God is in the midst. God is there. We see these supernatural figures in other places in the Bible. You see the seraphim in Isaiah 6, and guess who is there? God, right? God. But this isn't the first time that we've seen the cherubim in the Bible so far. Anybody know where the cherubim popped up the first time? Genesis 3. Is that God was with his people in the garden in Genesis 3. They sinned and they fell. And they had to be exiled out of the garden. And God puts in verse 24 the cherubim with flaming swords to guard the garden, to guard God's presence. Right? Because they could no longer be in it. This ark is God's throne. That's what later biblical authors will say in the Psalms. This is the throne of God. This is where the cherubim are. It's that God is enthroned upon the cherubim, Psalms 90, verse 1 says. God is enthroned there. And so this ark, the first piece, the centerpiece of 
of the tabernacle is associated with God's holy presence. And it's a dangerous holy presence, is it not? So much so that if you treat it lightly, you will die. If you don't approach it correctly, you will die. It's kind of like the sun, right? If you don't take the proper precautions and you don't stand at a close enough, far enough distance, it will kill you. This is God's dangerous holy presence. So this is the first piece of the tabernacle. But church, listen to this. The Ark of the Covenant has not and did not last. The day is coming when Israel and us, we don't need the Ark of the Covenant anymore to have God's holy presence among them. This is what Jeremiah 3 says. I just want to read these words to you. Jeremiah 3, verses 16 through 17. It says this, And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. I shall not come, it shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall gather to it to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. Listen, church, we no longer need a place where the presence of God dwells. We no longer need an ark where we go to. Praise God, we have Jesus Christ in whom the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Praise God, we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. You no longer need a ark to go and be near God. You have the Spirit of God dwelling in you now. That's why Jeremiah can say, it will no longer be said or remembered because God's people, He will be enthroned in their hearts. The day is coming, church, when no longer will we need to put God's words into an ark, into a box. But praise God, what Jeremiah 31 says is that God puts His words not into a box, but He writes them on the hearts of humans, on us, in the new covenant. The old covenant associated with an ark of the covenant, where He puts the words in a box, He now, by the Spirit of God, has written God's words on our hearts. And now we can obey it. We can obey it. And now we're told to store it in our hearts, as Psalm 119 says. Are you storing God's Word in your heart right now? Are you putting that in? Because just as we said earlier, what, what do we put in safes? We put things that we treasure. We put things that we value. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, how can a man keep his way pure? How can he follow the Lord? By hiding his word. God's word in his heart. Are we doing that now? Church in Christ, we don't have to approach God in utter terror and fear that his holiness will endanger our lives. In Christ Jesus, who is our holiness and righteousness, you can have great confidence in drawing near to God. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. How dangerous of that would have sounded to an Israelite back in the day. Hey, you can just walk straight into the Holy of Holies and go straight to the throne. That would have been impossible. It would have been dangerous. And what the author of Hebrews says, if you're in Christ, you can go to God with the greatest of confidence 
that you don't have to fear His holiness. You can bask in it. And He will receive you in. Are you going to God with everything? Are you fearful of what He might say or do when you go to Him? Do you feel that you have the confidence to draw near to God right now? If you don't, if you're living in fear of God, maybe you need Christ. Maybe you need Christ. The next piece is an essential part of the ark. It's how Israel approaches God. And it's through the mercy seat. The mercy seat is a reminder of the atonement. And it's placed on top of the ark, kind of, kind of sealing the ceremony. If you remember when uh, kings and queens, they go through this, uh, this great uh, coronation service. And the, kind of the climax of the ceremony is this. They put the what on top of the king or the queen? The crown, right? And this is what we're seeing here with the Ark of the Covenant. Is it kind of at the end, is that the mercy seat, or maybe some of your, your translations have the atonement lid or cover. Is that at the end, the mercy seat, the atonement lid is placed on top of the Ark. And what is significant about this? Well, the significance is this. In Leviticus 16, every year on the Day of the Atonement, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and he sprinkles the blood of the sacrifices on the mercy seat. On the place where God dwells with His people and appears to them. And speaks to them. And meets with them. The sacrifice, the blood, is sprinkled on the atonement altar. Because it's atoning for the people's sins. The animal is taking the place of Israel in that moment. They should die for their sins. But the animal, his blood is spilt for them. The animal receives the punishment of death, while Israel receives forgiveness of sin. This is what Leviticus 17.11 says. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. What is the, what is the priest doing when he goes to the mercy seat and sprinkles it on? He's making atonement for Israel's sins. A life. For a life. The animal dying in their place. So the mercy seat is a reminder. This piece, this piece of furniture, this piece that's going on top of the ark, is a reminder for all of us and all of Israel that people are sinners. That sin must be atoned for. That God mercifully provides a substitute. And that they can be cleansed. We can be cleansed from our sins through sacrifice. Because sin breaks the relationship with God. But Israel restores their relationship with Yahweh. Averts His wrath and justice by propitiation. And forgives the sacrifice offered on the mercy seat. This is what they do year after year after year after year. The priest going to the mercy seat, sprinkling the blood. The sins are atoned for. Year after year. Guess what? What does that say if you have to do something year after year? It's not working. It doesn't work completely. If if I have to replace something on my home year after year after year after year, or I have to fix something on my home year after year after year, does that mean that it's really fixed? This is what the Bible tells us. These sacrifices could never completely do the job for Israel. 
This is why Chance read at the very beginning from Hebrews. Hebrews 10 says this, The law was a shadow of things to come, because it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. What's offered on the mercy seat could never do the job. We needed to be made perfect, which is why we needed a perfect sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ. This is why the mercy seat was there in the first place. The mercy seat in the ark, on the ark, was pointing forward to the future coming atonement lid cover mercy seat, Christ Jesus. If you look at Romans 3.25, you don't have to turn your Bibles there, but this is what Paul says about Jesus. Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, if you see the ESV, but you might see some other translations of this word. You might see in the CSB, mercy seat. Or if you have the NIV, the atonement lid or sacrifice of atonement. So that the mercy seat was looking forward to somebody who would come, who would truly be the mercy seat where God's wrath would be poured out on Him and His own blood would be sacrificed on our behalf. And it would do away with any other sacrifice that was needed. That was Christ Jesus, our mercy seat. That was Him. Look, you may have come in here this morning. I don't know what your background is this morning, if you're church, unchurch, believer, unbeliever. But here's the question. How can you be cleansed from your sin? How can you make right what you've done wrong? How can you be forgiven? And it is only through the atoning work of Christ. It is only through the mercy seat that Jesus has perfected. The second question is this. What do you need most in the world? Think about that. What do you need most in the world? What you need most in the world is to be restored. It's to have God's wrath satisfied. It's to be forgiven of your sins. And only those things can be found in Christ. Let me just, can I, can I, can I give a piece of just like helpful guidance as we think about evangelism? We'll be thinking about this in the fall. This is a great evangelistic question to ask somebody. What do you think you need? It's a great, it's a simple question. It's, it's disarming, right? What do you think you need? And a person say, man, you know what would be really helpful for me right now? If I had an extra million dollars. You know what would be really helpful for me if I had a bigger home? You know what would be you know, helpful right now? My kids would get out of my house, right? not speaking on anybody's behalf. It's not personal testimony time. You know, you know, you know what you know what I need? Man, I just need I need I need this. I need that. I need a nicer car. That's a great question to ask people. What do you think you need? What do you think your greatest need is? And then here's a good answer. What if I were to tell you you could gain all those things and still lose your soul because it wouldn't be atoned for. You wouldn't be forgiven. You wouldn't have your sins cleansed. So you could have everything that you think you need and still miss exactly what you need, which is to be forgiven of your sins. And that's why we have Christ Jesus, our mercy seat. The benefits of the atonement are seen in, 
in another piece of furniture the significance of the table. So we have the mercy seat that shows us that we need cleansing from our sin. And if we are cleansed from our sins, then it brings us to this next piece of furniture, the table, which gives us fellowship. I think I can agree that everybody in here probably has a table in their home. Tables are pretty, I mean, unless you like to eat on the floor, um, tables are pretty important pieces of furniture. Uh, everybody seems to have this. It just seems to be essential that you eat at a table. Well, even God's own dwelling place, his tabernacle, has a what? It has a, has a table, right? It has a table. And this table will hold where they pour out their drink offerings. It will hold the bread of presents and things like that. And it's a significant piece of the tabernacle. And what is the significance with the bread on it? Why, why is there bread there? Well, I think the bread of the presence that's on the table is it symbolizes God's presence in the tabernacle. It symbolizes His provision for His people. It symbolizes His fellowship that He has with them. Look, it symbolizes His presence there. The bread is perpetually kept. Every seven days... The priests bring in a new nice loaf, right? A hot, fresh loaf of bread every seven days. And the bread of presence is a constant reminder that this house is inhabited by somebody. That's why it's kept fresh. It's not old bread all the time. So God's there. God's present. And not only that, that the bread signifies that provision. Provision is being made. Well, let me ask you kids. Can I ask you all kids a question? Does God ever get hungry? God ever get hungry? No, because God's not like us. He doesn't have needs that we have, right? He doesn't have any needs. He doesn't need anything. So he doesn't get hungry like us. So I don't think the bread of presence is on the table because, man, God's stomach starts growling and he needs to eat something. And man, he just, he's stuck in that tabernacle all day and he just needs a bite to eat. That's not why it is, right? No. The bread of presence is there because it's a reminder that God needs no provision, but He is the one who provides for His people. I mean, has not God provided bread in the wilderness already for Israel? In Exodus 16, manna, right? Bread there. Lastly is that the bread of presence on the table is a reminder that God has fellowship with His people. We've already seen Exodus 24, if you remember a couple weeks ago, is that the Israel, most of Israel stayed on the mountain, stayed at the bottom of the mountain. Then some of the select few, they came up about halfway. And does anybody remember what they did, what they were doing about halfway up the mountain? They ate a meal because they had an intimate relationship with God. They were eating together, showing that there is fellowship, there's allegiance, there's alliance now with God. Their relationship has drastically changed. So the bread of presence is a reminder. They have fellowship with God now. I mean, don't we still experience this a little bit today? Is that we eat with people as a sign of friendship, fellowship with them. You even think about famous like presidential dinners or state dinners and stuff like that. June 8th, June 8th in 1939, President Franklin D. Roosevelt invited England's King George VI to the United States, uh, marking the first time a British monarch set foot on American soil. 
1939. March 26, 1979, President Carter in, aided the end of a 30-year-long state of war between Egypt and Israel through a meal. So meals are a way to show that there is fellowship now. There are alliances. There is a different relationship now. The bread of presence on the table, when Israel walks in, when the priests walk in, they're saying, we're walking into this tabernacle as a reminder that this God has fellowship with us now. His fellowship with us. And that He has provided the means by which we can have fellowship with Him. Do you know this church? That one of the benefits of the atonement of Christ is that you have fellowship with God now. That your station in life and your position towards God has changed drastically. You were once hostile and an enemy of God, but through Christ Jesus, you now are a friend and child. Isn't that pretty crazy to see that drastic change when enemies go to children? Right? We don't typically adopt our enemies to be our children, right? God does. He does. That we have fellowship with God, and because we have fellowship with God, we have fellowship with one another. 1 John 1.3 says this, That which we have seen and heard we also proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Here's one of the benefits of the atonement. We can enjoy fellowship with one another. That is one of the marks that we truly have fellowship with God. Do we have good fellowship here at Cross Point? Do we enjoy being in one another's presence? Do we love being a part of the fellowship of God's people? Because one of the benefits and one of the fruits of fellowship with, with God is fellowship with one another. We enjoy that. We long for it. As we learned today in Psalms 84 and 87, we long to be with God in the temple where everybody else is going to. Right? But church, to receive the benefits of fellowship with God, you don't have to partake of the bread of presence. You have to partake of the bread of life, which is Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus can say this. <laughs> I'm the bread of life. Whoever shall come to me shall no longer hunger. Right? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. They died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This morning, if you want to have fellowship with God, you don't have to go find the bread of presence. You don't have to go look for anywhere else. You just partake of the bread of life, which is Jesus. That's Him. This is what the table reminds us, the fellowship that we have with God. And this fellowship that we have with God gives us a new life. And that's what this next piece of furniture is the lampstand, is a reminder of the life that we get from God. Did anybody, was anybody afraid of the dark growing up? Maybe you're still afraid of the dark, right? Does anybody sleep with the nightlight still? Anybody? Okay, nobody... Mr. George is the only one back here. Look, we have a nightlight in our, in our room. Uh, you know, the dark, for me as a kid, darkness was terrifying. Because you're there. You're like laying there. You hear noises in the dark. You, don't see, you can't see anything. You're like, who was that? Was that one of the kids? Like, so there's still a fearfulness of darkness, even as we get into adulthood, right? 
Because here's what's interesting. There's something comforting about a light, right? There's something that brings comfort about light, where you can see things, and you're aware, and you know what's going on around you, right? And this is what is the lamp stands for, is that it gives light to the tabernacle. And from this light, the people are reminded of the life-giving presence that God has. In these verses about the lampstand, when you look at 31 through 40, the lampstand really focuses in on the design of the lampstand, the placement of the lampstand, and the purpose of it. And I don't know if you caught this just by reading the details of the lampstand, but listen to all of how it's detailed. It's talked about its stem, its cups, its calyxes, its flowers, its branches, blossoms. What does that sound like to you? Sounds like a tree to me, right? Branches? Blossoms? Sounds like a tree. A reminder that the lampstand that's placed in the middle of the tabernacle that's designed like a tree that's to give light to the tabernacle is reminding Israel of the life that they used to have access to in the garden, in the tree of life, that they have full access to in God's presence, that they could go to and be nourished by and obtain eternal life from. This is the reminder of the lampstand. Just like the tree of life was put into the middle of the garden, the lampstand's put into the middle of the tabernacle to give light to the tabernacle. A reminder that God's presence is always with His people. The lampstand doesn't go out. It's constantly taken care of. God's presence will never be extinguished. And second, is that the lampstand is a reminder that just like the tree of life, that God is the one who gives life and sustains it. And so, light and life are intimately connected with one another. Light and life. This is why Jesus can say in John 8, 12, I am the light of the what? World. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of what? Life. Light and life are intimately connected with one another. And the lampstand in the tabernacle is a reminder that this God is a God of light, and He gives life to His people. And that in the future, there will come one who will really give His people life and light in Jesus Christ as the light of the world. The ark, the table, the lampstand, it's all, all are setting us up for something better though. This is not the end game and this is the last point, the pattern. It's the heaven realities. I don't know if you use this phrase, this is just a little piece of heaven on earth. Anybody use that phrase? I, I use it when I take a bite of something, a dessert. You know, uh, many of you have made me desserts. I think about Jen Kimball and Billy Middleton, they made me lemon squares. Miss Ann Bolton made me this caramel chocolate thing just a couple weeks ago. Miss Martha Morrison, she makes this blueberry, uh, uh. Miss Tina Anderson has this potato salad. 
Man, Tracy Cooper makes this cookie that is the size of two of my heads, which is not that big, as you know, but huge. Miss Wendy's got this, she's got this hmm, Swiss chicken, as you know. And the reason that we have so many children is so that we can continue to get Swiss chicken when we have children. Amen, Mara? Okay. Every time I bite into those, I say, this is just a little piece of heaven on earth. It's a taste of what is to come, right? It's a taste. And this is what the pattern of the tabernacle is to be for the people. It's a pattern, right? This is what it says. Make them after verse 40 the pattern for them. It's a pattern. It's a little piece. This is God's way of dwelling here on the earth with them. A little piece of heaven on earth is what they're experiencing. But the tabernacle is not intended to be the permanent residence of God. Right? The tabernacle is not the original. It's not the archetype. It's not the prototype. Right? It's a copy of something better. Just like when you hear people say, if you think this is great... Wait till you get a load of what? This. If you think this is great, wait till you see this. If you think that is great, wait till you taste this, right? There is something better that is to come. That's why the author of Hebrews can say things like, these are but a copy and a shadow of things. That these are copies of heavenly things. That this is a shadow of the things to come. The tabernacle is not going to be the last place that God dwells. And it is only a foretaste of something better that is to come, church. It is only a taste. This is why the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, quotes Exodus 25, 40. He says, the, the tabernacle, it was a pattern. It was a copy of what was already going on in heaven, in God's heavenly abode. And it's what is to come in the future. Church. I know that when we read these stories or when we read these verses in Exodus 25, 10 through 40, and you hear about all these designs, you hear about all these patterns, you hear about all the structures and the features, and you hear about all the things that are made out and how it's constructed and stuff like that, and you're like, man, I don't see how this has any bearing on my life. It has every bearing on your life. The tabernacle is preparing you for something in the future, church. Our future home with God. In the future, new heavens, new earth, you won't need an ark because God's presence will be there among His people perfectly and completely. Revelation 21.3 And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. In the future new heavens and new earth, you won't need a mercy seat because atonement has been made, which is why we can be there in the first place. Revelation 5, 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain. In the future new heavens and new earth, you won't need a table or the bread of presence because all of our needs will be met when we have fellowship with together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19.7 Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. In the new heavens and new earth, you won't need a lampstand because the glory of God and the Lamb will be our light and life. Revelation 21.23 And the city has no need of a sun or a moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. Revelation 22.5 And night will be no more. 
they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's why this matters, people. That's why Revelation 25 matters. It's preparing you. Set your eyes there. Set your eyes there. As we heard in in Psalm 84, the highways of Zion should be deep in our hearts, making us ready, focused in on what is to come because we have Christ. Let's pray. God, we love you. God, we don't deserve anything that you've promised here. We don't deserve a heavenly home that has no need of sun, that has no need of the bread of presence, that has no need of a mercy seat, that has no need of an art, but God, you give it to us all in Christ. And that is what our eyes look forward to. Let us rejoice and be glad. For you are not stingy with your promises. There is no good thing that you withhold from those who walk uprightly and in the new heavens and new earth, as we see in the tabernacle, we will be given everything. Everything. To Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.